Welcome to Science Bites, a podcast from Australia's leading supercomputing and big data research facility, the National Computational Infrastructure. You'll be hearing from some of our users about their careers, their scientific research, what excites them about the work they do, and how supercomputing and data technologies help them make scientific discoveries. Coming from all around the world and from a huge range of scientific disciplines, they are the people behind the science headlines you see every day. And now over to Andy in conversation with today's guest, Linda McIver. Dr. Linda McIver is the founder and executive director of the Australian Data Science Education Institute, the author of Raising Heretics, Teaching Kids to Change the World, and the host of the Make Me Data Literate podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Linda. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's great to be here. And what part of the world are you joining us from today? We're in chilly Melbourne today. Yes, it's a little bit of a chilly spring morning here, um, early part of the day yet. So let's get on to uh, your background before we get to uh, the exciting present and future. You weren't always involved in STEM education the way that you are, were you? Uh, no, I, I sort of, I've been, I guess, zeroing in on the way to uh, really make the most impact that I can. So I started out as an academic in computer science. Mm-hmm. My PhD was actually in computer science education, and that was my research area as an academic. And I felt like that wasn't translating to classroom change. I didn't really feel like I was having a big impact. So I moved into secondary teaching where I felt like I was having more impact and the closer connection with the students was very, very uplifting to me. And while I was doing that, I figured out how to engage kids with STEM who weren't engaged before and how to persuade kids that they could program and that programming was worth doing and that they could really engage with these kind of what it's often considered as the harder tech skills, the programming and the data science And so I quit because I wanted everyone to be able to do that, not just the kids in my classroom, which is why I started ADSI and made it a charity to make sure it's accessible to everybody. Yeah, brilliant. So uh, what does ADSI, the Australian Data Science Education Institute, what, what, what are your aims? The goal is really to empower kids to make change from five years old upwards Mm. using STEM skills. So they're solving real problems in their own communities using STEM. They're learning to code and learning to manage and analyze data, but they're learning in the context of a real problem that they actually care about. And what that means is there's no textbook solution. They can't look it up in the back of the book to see if they got it right. Uh So they have to critically evaluate their own work. They have to look for the flaws because there will be flaws. There's no such thing as a perfect solution to a real problem. Mm. Uh, And so you build in all of this critical thinking and, and problem solving and you teach kids that these skills are tools they can use to make real change and have real impact in their communities. Yeah, so it's not just a simple matter of teaching somebody to code. It's more a a holistic thing of how to uh, embed this more into your life as an individual and hopefully as a society. Exactly. So if you teach kids, we've been trying for decades to teach kids to code using toys. Mm-hmm. You know, we have them program robots to follow lines or push each other out of circles and we draw pretty pictures in block-based interfaces and the kids can't see the point. And what we're showing them is, hey, you can have fun with coding. Those who don't find it fun, therefore go, well, I don't find it fun. There's nothing in this for me. It's not relevant. It's not interesting. And they, they lack the motivation to push through when it gets hard, which it does get hard. You know, you always face problems that you have to sort of push through to solve. 
you have to give them a reason to want to push through. And if they're solving real problems and, and using them to actually make change that they care about, then the motivation is 100% there. Yeah, I know what you mean. Back when, uh, oh, way too many decades to mention in polite conversation, when I was in primary school, <laughs> my teacher gave me this book of, I think it must have been like basic, the programming language, and um, just said, I think it was in front of a Commodore 64 or something, and just, I was to type the code out of the book into the program and then make the program run. And I don't remember whether I lost interest or the teacher did first, but we never finished that program (laughs) because I was just like, what's this? I didn't even know what it was going to do. It was just quite irrelevant. And so, so yeah, it's easy to sort of lose track if you don't keep your eyes on the prize, I suppose. 100%. Kids don't always find that stuff fun, and if they don't find it fun, they lose interest. But if they're solving something real, if they're doing something they actually care about, then... The engagement and the motivation, it just skyrockets. Mm. And so you've written a book called Raising Heretics, Teaching Kids to Change the World. How can data science and computational science help kids to change the world? Well, that's precisely it. So what what we do is we get them to find a problem in their own community. And sometimes I sort of I have a lot of templates and a lot of examples of problems they can use. And it might be litter in the playground. There's no school in the world that doesn't have a litter in the playground problem. Yeah. Um, or it might be traffic. It might be access to sporting facilities. Or it might be something more intense like facilities for homeless people. It might be income inequality. There's, it doesn't really matter what the problem is as long as it's something that kids see as real and important. And we get them to, first of all, measure the problem. And so that's your first step in data is go, okay, well, how can we measure it? And that's always more complicated than you think it is. Even counting things is surprisingly difficult because you have to have a definition of what to count. You know, if you're counting, for example, if you're counting traffic in the local area and you count it on an average Monday, that might be a rusted day off for the building sites nearby. So is that actually uh, representative of a normal day? Mm. How do you know? You know, uh, and and what do you count as traffic? Are you, do you count pedestrians? Do you count trucks? Do you count cars? Are you counting the number of people in the cars? You know, you have to sort of zero in on what exactly are we counting? What do we care about? You might be counting time. How long does it take to get from one end of the street to another at a particularly busy time? Or how long does it take for kids to get picked up? Or you know. It depends on what you care about. So you have to start with your definitions. What do we care about? What are we measuring? And then they analyze and communicate that. And then the trick is they come up with something they can do about it, some kind of uh, solution or at least improvement to the problem. And then this is where we really deviate from a lot of work at the moment. A lot of projects in schools do these design thinking things where they come up with these grandiose solutions and then they're done. But in this case, you actually implement it. And then, this is my favorite part, you go, Mm -hmm. how did it work? How did it not work? Who did it help? Who did it harm? What are the issues with this solution? How can we improve it? Because like I said at the start, there's no such thing as a perfect solution to a real problem. They're always complex and they always have unexpected side effects. So you actually measure it to see how well it worked. And then you compare the measurements with the starting measurements and say, well, did we make a difference? Did we change the things we wanted to change? Did we make anything worse? And what they learn then is that we can use this stuff to really make change. We can and to show that we've made change. 
And for the five-year-olds, they can be, their data science is, is counting things and stacking blocks, and that's fine. Yep. But for the, the year 10s and the year 11s, they might be, you know, programming and making complex visualizations. It just depends on where they're up to. That's really cool. And that would be in a classroom setting with a computer or, you know, maybe a network of computers in a... Um... Not necessarily. No? They can they can absolutely do it without computers. And, ah, you know, the, yes. the preppies would be doing it without computers. So your five-year-olds, like I said, the visualisation is going to be stacking blocks, their analysis is counting and grouping things, and that is still data science. Yeah. And it's just starting from the start and going, okay, data is real and it's complex and it's messy. As uh, Professor Ewan Ritchie said on my podcast recently, the real world isn't simple and you have to embrace noise. You have to get used to the fact that things are going to be messy and complicated. So we start doing that from five years up. So if they're doing a letter project, how do they categorize the litter? Do they categorize it according to where it was in the playground or how close it was to a rubbish bin, how close it was to the canteen, or do they categorize it by plastic, paper, and foil or do they categorize it as you know junk food or and things from you know the, there's infinite ways to categorize the litter and then they have to figure out well how might the count that we did for, of the litter today be different to the count that we do tomorrow with the grade fives out on excursion was it a windy day so half the litter's blown away you know what are the things that make this data collection unreliable that's uh, interesting. I, yeah, I suppose I hadn't thought of it that way. So, yeah, it can be done pen and paper with computers and uh, it's still all data science. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. And moving up from pen and paper, computers, now we're talking supercomputers like the NCI systems. Um, how have you used supercomputing projects to get kids more interested in data science? So, so far I've had a couple of angles into that and I'm, I'm keen to do some more. Um, mm -hmm. I have some collaborations with Pawsey Supercomputing Centre in Perth where we um, have built projects funded by Pawsey to use real data and to do these, these real projects in the context of data about the students themselves. So one, one project is a sleep science project where the kids fill out a survey about their sleep and the things that impact it. And then they analyze the data of hundreds, possibly thousands by now of, of people's sleep data and explore questions about it. Like, does mobile phone use impact your sleep? Are pets a problem? Or, you know, they can ask whatever kinds of questions they want and slice up the data, whichever way they want. The other thing that I've done, which actually came about because uh, of the time that supercomputing in the US was online because of the pandemic, yeah. uh, we made some videos of people talking about different aspects of data science so that we're building a kind of library on YouTube of people talking about the way they use HPC and data science in their work and, and the kinds of problems that they solve and also little, little introductions to different techniques that they can do. So we're trying to build this library of, of resources that people can access to get involved with supercomputing without necessarily writing crazy complex code. Yeah. Some kids would be in their element simply having an excursion to something like Guardian, having a look at it up close and nerding out at the CPUs and GPUs and all that. They're the kids that would end up in STEM anyway. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How could we use high-performance computing to engage more kids than that? I think getting the kids in to see NCI is great, but um, more importantly is all of the amazing projects that run on the NCI system so that 
they learn about the incredible range of applications. A lot of people think HPC is something that's just, you know, remote and distant and something they can't understand. So if they learn Mm. that it's being used to understand COVID and to model the way the spike protein interacts with the immune system and, you know, it's used for astrophysics and it's used for, you know, simulating fuel efficiency and, you know, just the incredible range of applications, I think, is incredibly powerful. So the more you hear about about the kinds of work that NCI does and in all of the bits and pieces they put out about the different projects, that's really powerful because that tells kids, oh, this thing that I'm interested in, you know, let's say they're interested in ecology, oh, you can use HPC to explore ecology. That's amazing, mm. you know. So that breadth of applications, I think, is really important to get across. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing as well. And uh, that would attract people of different ways of thinking, I suppose, you know, the, the more artistic or the more analytical. And I'm getting to the uh, the topic of diversity, now, not just simply in ways of thought, but, you know, in gender, gender identity, uh, religion, sexuality. How do we attract a greater diversity of people in that way to computational science and data science? So that's one of the things that really hit me powerfully when I started doing these data projects. I started doing them before I left teaching, and that was, as I said, you know, figured it out and and left to spread it, which was that we had a core subject in year 10 that everyone had to do, and when we started doing data science in that subject, the elective computer science subject in year 11 was suddenly much bigger. There were a lot more girls, uh, but also and this was fascinating to me, there were a lot more boys. And that really brought home to me that that diversity is not just about the easily measurable things that you can see, you know, that you can count, like how many, how many girls, how many non-binary people, how many boys, that's easy to count. But if you actually look at personality type and background and interests and, you know, really trying to get a diversity of perspective into HPC, then you find that you do that by giving them something real to do, Mm. giving them a reason, showing them that this is a tool you can use, and also giving them the experience of achieving something. Because I think for a lot of kids, they rule themselves out very early. They go, this is not something I can do. My own kids think they're bad at maths because they were very slow on the timetables challenge in primary school. And that's not actually maths, that's memory. That's right, (laughs) Um, yeah. And they weren't that interested in it, and so they didn't put a lot of effort into memorising it, and so they labelled themselves as bad at maths, and that was the end of it. So we, we know that we've lost kids to STEM before they leave primary school, and they've often ruled themselves out as not being able to do it. So you've got to give them an experience in high school. <laughs> I mean, you have to tackle it in primary school, but you also got to give them an experience in high school where you show them that it's something they can do. So a lot of people, when they go to teach data science, are teaching the really complex and and challenging programming. I never did that. I actually started them off with incredibly simple, extracting some information from a file, doing some very basic calculations like average and maximum and minimum, and then even drawing the visualizations by hand. And of course, you have kids in the class for whom that's incredibly low level. And so you can set them flying on on more complex stuff. But for the kids who come in going this, I can't code and coding's too hard for me, you give them a project where they can code and they achieve success and they go, this is something I can do. I had yeah. no idea this was something I could do. And it just, you know, it changes everything. 
Yeah. And it would be fascinating to see the results that come back in things like that because, as he said before, there's often no right or almost always no right or wrong answer. Yep. So with the diversity of people involved, you'd be getting a, a fascinating diversity of things back from them too, from different perspectives and different ways of thinking. Exactly. And if it's a rich and complex data set, then every kid can ask a different question of the data set, which means every kid has to do a different analysis and, you know, come up with different um, approaches. And and so, you know, it tackles a lot of problems. It means they're not cheating. They're not, you know, they can't all turn in the same code because they're all doing different analyses. When it comes to coding, how do we make it easier for kids to learn? You wrote a, uh, you wrote a programming language and uh, I love the name of it. <laughs> It's You've been a, doing your research. Yeah, Grail, the genuinely readable <laughs> and intuitive language. Does simpler language like that make it easier for more people to learn or is it the motivation thing or is it a combination? How, how does that work? I actually think motivation is the biggest factor, but certainly programming languages are not designed for people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, they are designed on the back of previous programming languages. So there's a lot of things that are in there for sort of historical reasons or reasons that, you know, programmers know how to do this. We'll keep doing it this way because that's what programmers understand. And you introduce non-programmers to the system and they're like, what the hell? Why would you even do that? That makes no sense. Mm. Um, So programming languages do make it a lot harder. But what I found during my PhD is that actually the programming language is less important than the idea that you can do something real with it. So I always use a real programming language. I usually use Python because Python's pretty readable as programming languages go, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the kids know that they can use it for something real and that it has, you know, immediate practical applications. And that's really important. Yeah. And knowing a bunch of different computing programming languages like you would, are there some programming languages that are more attractive to certain kinds of people? I'm, I'm sort of wondering whether there are some programs that might be written and they would turn out differently depending on the programming language that they were written in because of the kind of people that are attracted to that particular programming language. You know, you might end up with X kind of program uh, on one language and uh, Y kind of program on another purely because of the human being approaching the project. That's a a hugely interesting question um, and and really complicated. But I, I think there is there's definitely a shift in the way you approach a problem based on the programming language you use. Mm -hmm. And uh, there tend to be clusters of people using particular programming languages. Um, Often if you go into research and you're working for a particular academic and they use this particular programming language and that's the one that you'll use and that will colour the way you approach things. As to whether the programming languages, I I really think it's more uh, social than personality type. So Mm -hmm. the programming language you use is a kind of social contagion because you tend to pick up the one that the person next to you is using or that the the lab you work in is using or that the people, you know, you know someone who uses that and they rave about it, so you pick it up. And there's probably a lot of technique contagion as well. Ah, yeah. I've seen a similar thing in um, in my background in uh, in in media where yeah different programs that you use you do pick it up from the person around you you don't sort of go oh you're yeah. you're using Pro Tools I'm going to use CoolEdit thank you it's uh, it's mm. a very different yeah you you use what what's available and what's most practical I suppose yeah absolutely and what do you do with kids that just consider themselves tech phobic 
is that a uh, an identity thing for them? I, I know that with adults that you you meet that say, "Oh, I'm not very good with all, all that technical stuff." You go, "Well, if if you can just sit down for five minutes, I can show you this and this and this, and it would work." But a lot of people just tend to re- be resistant from the get go. Are there well, that things is, that you can that's do? That's one of the issues. Yeah, there absolutely are, and that's one of the issues that comes from the ways we approach tech in primary school. And often kids will have bad experiences with tech because a lot of tech is really poorly designed and unusable and easily broken. And it's my big problem with using robots and things like that in the classroom because the story I often tell is my my youngest, when they were, I think, about 12, bought themselves a, a drone uh, which was an X-wing mm-hmm. drone from Comic Con, and they were so excited, and they were an absolute tech nerd. And the drone didn't work. We got it home, got it out, tried to turn it on, didn't work. We spent hours faffing about with it. I'm a computer scientist. My husband's an electrical engineer. We couldn't make it work because you know there was there was a broken component or something. Yeah. The company replaced it, but by the time the second one came, about two weeks later, my kiddo had learned that tech was something. If it went wrong, you couldn't fix it. And so they were out. They were like, there's not something I can do, Mm. which is just devastating, but it's often a real problem with tech. And software can do the same things. You know, uh, if you stand in a room of adults and say, how many, you know, how many of you have lost hours of work because the software is glitched? Yeah. It's everybody. Software and and technology bite us on a regular basis. So (laughs) we do learn this kind of fear and this it, it devastates me how often I hear people say, I'm terrible with tech. And I'm like, no, tech is terrible with you. Uh-huh. We have a real a real usability problem and a real design problem in tech that, that is not about the users. It's about the stuff that we create. So that comes back to you have to give them simple things to do that they can do. You have to give them the support along the way so that when they get stuck, you can help them over the the hurdle. And that's one of the issues in the classroom is that teachers have not learned to program. For the most part, the teachers who are kind of shoveled into teaching tech just happen to have time in their in their allocation. And so they got stuffed into it. They don't have the background. They don't have the skills. And if they're learning along with the students, then they don't have the ability to identify where things have gone wrong. Actually mm. spotting the problem and helping the kids over that requires you to be well advanced in, in coding. And that teaches the kids, again, that that when they get stuck, they go to their teacher, who is God you know, in primary school, yeah. and the teacher can't fix it. And they're like, well, if God can't fix it, what hope do I have? I'm out. You, know, you lose them. Yeah. So you've got to give them the support and you've got to give them the, the pace-by-pace simple programs that they can do and build up that confidence and that success factor. And part of the complexity around that is that, as I said, teachers don't have that background and they haven't been taught it in their teaching degrees and stuff, which is one Mm. of the reasons that ADC doesn't work with kids. We work with teachers because it, it scales. And also once the teachers have the skills and the confidence, then things go much better in the classroom. Yeah. Counteracting that, would that be your most challenging thing in your day-to-day work or what would you find is your greatest challenge? I think the fear factor is definitely the biggest and and the fear factor of the teachers is even bigger than the fear factor of the kids. Uh So 
you know, I remember working with a chemistry teacher to build some data science into her work and she'd been told by her head of faculty that she had to come and talk to me and you could see, like, she, to her credit, she was brave. She was the first of the faculty who who approached me and made a time, but you could see when she came to the meeting she was terrified and thought that this was going to be way beyond her and she was terrified that she was going to look stupid. And I looked at what she was already doing and we started to build some data science in and she was like, oh, I can do this. I was like, I know you can. Yeah. You you know, if you can teach chemistry, you can absolutely build data science into it. You're way smart enough. You know, there's no no issue there. But the trauma that tech inflicts on us along the way teaches us that we can't do it. And you have to be able to tackle that. You have to be able to kind of beat down the fear factor before you can get teachers really engaged with this stuff. So if I mm. label my workshops as data science workshops, I get no sign-ups, but if I label them as STEM workshops, I get sign-ups. It's the same content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what do you find most rewarding about your day-to-day work? <sighs> Lots of things. Um, but the main thing is just that I feel like I'm in exactly the right place to to make a difference and I'm having an impact. The best thing is when teachers come to me and go, oh, my God, we did this project you know, I was inspired by something you you said or something you wrote or something in your podcast and we did this amazing thing in class and the kids were so engaged and it was just the best and now I'm improving on it. You know, it's that's when I feel like, yeah, this is working. It's the dream of any education professional. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Linda, thank you very, very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And a big thanks to you for listening to Science Bites. You can keep up with Linda MacGyver on Twitter at Linda MacGyver. That's M-C-I-V-E-R. And you can also check out the Australian Data Science Education Institute at adsei.org. NCI is on Twitter at NCI News and on LinkedIn as National Computational Infrastructure. Bye for now.